All right, this morning we finally come to the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 6, this little diversion that began back in chapter 5, where the the author really calls us to an urgent consideration of really the state of our faith, the state of our walk with God, uh, urges us to move beyond sluggish Christianity, sluggish religion, and move to an energetic, urgent faith that looks to eat consume good, healthy spiritual food and not uh, milk. We get to the end of this, and at the end, he has expressed confidence that uh, danger is not ahead of us, but rather better things pertaining to the promises of God. And in this final little section, before he takes up again his argument about Christ and the supremacy of Christ, he points us to the promises of God and the God who makes those promises. So, Hebrews 6 Verses 13 to 20 is before us this morning. Let me read it for us. Uh, This is, as always, the very word of our living God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, whole, into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So once again, the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, Uh, May he bless us as we come before it here this morning. Let me pray for us as we do. Our God and Father in heaven, we ask as always that you would bless this time when we hear your word, speak to us through it this morning and fulfill your very own promises that when it goes out it does not return to you empty, but rather instead fulfills all that you have intended for it and is successful in everything for which you send it. For us, Pour out your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us see and hear this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk in that light instead of walking in darkness, according to your word. All this we ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, you've probably said it. I've said it. You've heard other people say it. Someone makes a promise, and how do we respond? Eh, promises, promises. I've heard it before. I've seen it before. Promises, promises. What are we saying when we say that? I don't believe you. (laughs) I don't trust you. I don't believe that you're going to follow through on what you've said. Wives say it to husbands. That's the stereotype. Parents say it to children. Bosses say it to workers. Promises, promises. 
And it's true that we often can't trust one another to follow through on a promise made because oftentimes promises are made very, very easily, very readily, and then frequently, frequently broken in the world that we live in today. Broken by those around us, in our family, our friends, co-workers. Broken by those who are in the business of making promises to us. Politicians, leaders. They make promises like promises are going out of style. They don't keep them. And we know they're not going to keep them. And yet we believe them anyway. The lack of follow-through, the lack of keeping those promises is very much in contrast with our God. Our God who is a promise-keeping God. And so again, in the midst of this diversion from the author's presentation to us of Jesus, greater than anything, better than anything, better than angels, better than prophets, better than Moses, better than Aaron, leading up to an explanation of how Jesus is like this unique high priest of the Old Testament, Melchizedek. He says, well, that's a difficult topic. I have a lot to say on it. But before I get there, I have some other things to say. He tells his readers, they become dull of hearing. They become sluggish. They become complacent in their faith and in their hearing of God's word. And he warns them about this and urges them again to spiritual food instead of milk and warns of the very real danger of even apostasy. But then he also encourages them that there are better things for them, things belonging to salvation, referring in very eloquent ways, I think, to faith, hope, and love. And then, where we ended off last time in chapter 6, verse 12, he urges them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of salvation, the promises of God. And in the passage this morning from 13 to 20, he gives us the supreme example that he can point us to. Abraham himself, one of those faithful who has inherited the promises of God, the promises of salvation. But he also points us to the one who keeps the promises, the one who believed the promises, but also the one, God himself, who made the promises, teaches us about his faithfulness in keeping those promises. And those promises, that example of Abraham, that pointing to God himself, reinforce that call in verse 12 to be imitators of those who inherit the promises of salvation. So those are just the three things I want to focus on this morning. First, remember Abraham and his faith. I'm going to spend a little time on that so we can kind of get the full background of what the author is referring to. Second, to look at what he has to say. What's he saying about God and the promises that he makes? And then try to consider just briefly in, in, in a few things, what does this mean for us today? who pursue or who ought to be pursuing the promises of salvation. So let's look at Abraham first. This great figure of the Old Testament. The, the God refers to it this way. The people of Israel refer to it this way. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three great patriarchs. He is the, the, the ultimate founder of the people of Israel. Abraham himself. He's first introduced to us in Genesis 11, in the genealogy of the descendants of Shem. 
Terah is his father. Lot is his nephew. He's got his wife Sarai with him. And they first moved from Ur, the Chaldeans, kind of out there near the, uh, the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates. And they move upriver, probably following the Euphrates, up to a city called Haran. Their intent was to go to Canaan, but his father settled in Haran, and there his father Terah died. And if, we, if you've been reading Genesis up to this point, paying attention to the genealogies, looking at how they're used and what they refer to, what we, can, what we can discern at this point, I think, pretty confidently, is that this Abram, as he's called at that point, that we've been introduced to, is part of that line, part of that seed of the woman, and not part of the seed of the serpent. And this idea begins to be confirmed for us very powerfully in Genesis 12, where God himself speaks to Abram tells him to go to the land that he will show him. And he promises that there God will make of Abram a great nation, will bless him, will make his name great. Abram himself will be a blessing to others. God tells Abram that he will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And he also tells him, already in in Genesis 12, that through Abram all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Think about that. What a call that is upon the life of Abraham, and quite a promise, extensive and powerful. So now we know, yes, this Abram is part of that family, part of that line that's going to lead to the seed of the woman. And we ought to connect the promises that God made to Eve after the fall, that one day her son is going to crush the serpent's head, to these same promises to Abraham. It's all part of the same thing. So now we can kind of begin to guess and understand that the son is not just going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to be a blessing. He's going to bless all the families of the earth and so on and so forth. But we also learn, oh and by the way, that Abraham is 75 years old. And we've been told already in Genesis 11 that his wife Sarai is barren, even as her Sisters-in-law bear children. I love this way that the Bible tells stories, all the more so because they're true stories. Abram is old. His wife is barren. She can't conceive. We're going to learn later that by this time she's 65 years old. She's 10 years younger. Through this old, old couple and their children, God is going to bless the entire world. Through them, God is going to fulfill his promises. And as readers, we have to sit there and stop and go, how? How is this humanly possible? How is God going to pull this off? Now the story continues through Genesis 25, so there's still a lot of the story to to tell and for us to hear. And Abraham does, in fact, have many adventures, like any good protagonist in any good story. He spends time in Egypt, where despite her age, this tells us something about Sarai. Her name means princess. She is a princess. And Pharaoh is attracted to her. And we learn about the temptation there and the curse that falls upon the king of Egypt. We learn about how Abram is a rich man. His herds, his possessions, his money increases. And that as his and his nephew Lot's 
herds and possessions and people grow, they need to separate. And Lot goes and takes the fertile land, the good land. Abraham's stuck with a less desirable land, but still he prospers. We read the story about Abraham rescuing Lot from enemies, and along the way he meets this Melchizedek, mysterious king of Salem and priest to God Most High, to whom Abram pays a tithe of his spoils on the battlefield. But then this king also blesses Abram, pronounces a very profound blessing over Abram. By this time, Abram's getting to wonder about his heir. Where is this heir that God has promised? Where is my family? Is it my servant, Eleazar? And God says, no, no, no. Eleazar of Damascus is not going to inherit the promises. You will have a son. And God confirms this promise in a very dramatic fashion. His own presence passes through divided animals. A very powerful covenant ceremony where God is saying by passing through animals cut in two, may I be like these animals if I don't fulfill my promises. I'm going to give this land to your offspring. Your own son will be your heir. And his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of of the heavens themselves. But the story continues, and, and no son is born. Sarai is barren. Abraham now is 85 years old, and she's 75. What are they going to do? Well, they hatch up a scheme. God promised to give us a son. Let's get a son. And in the culture, the son born to a slave woman, a uh, a concubine or a handmaiden, well, that's legally a son. So Sarah's got a handmaiden, Hagar, and convinces Abraham to conceive and bear a son through her. And so Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86 years old. But again, God comes to Abraham and reiterates his promise to make him great and now changes his name from Abraham, which means just exalted father, to Abraham, the father of a multitude, the father of many nations. He says, kings are going to come from you. Canaan will be yours. And then he gives to Abraham and his descendants a sign of of this covenant promise, circumcision itself. Imagine being 86 years old and having to go through that process. And all his household, all the men. But Sarai also gets a, a little name change. Her name doesn't change meaning, but now she is Sarah. At this promise, what do they do? They laugh. <laughs> this is crazy. You're going to do this? You're going to give us a child? By now, Abraham's a hundred, and Sarah is ninety. Yes, confirms God, and you laughed, and so his name will be Isaac, which refers to laughter. Abraham does have many more adventures, including interceding for Sodom and for Lot, his nephew, conflict with a king named Abimelech. But finally, Isaac is born, the son of promise. And Sarah now laughs with joy over the birth of her son. And Isaac grows. This is the background which gets us to our Old Testament reading, Genesis 22. After these things, Genesis 22 and its dramatic story happens. God tested Abraham. And it is a test. It is a difficult, terrible, excruciating test. 
Take your son, he says. Go to Moriah, one of the mountains that I'm going to show to you, and offer your son as a burnt offering there. And what does Abram do? What does Abraham do? What would you do? What would I do? Here's, here's the kid. Here's the boy. Here's the one that God promised is going to come all these descendants and the fulfillment of all these promises. And now God is telling me to kill him. What? But Abraham obeys God. He goes to Moriah. He goes to the mountain. He binds his son to the wood. He lifts the knife to slaughter his son. That word is striking in Genesis 22. Not to sacrifice, not to kill, to slaughter his son. No hint of any hesitation in the story whatsoever. No evidence of any kind of internal struggle, which we would kind of expect. That would be natural. But the Word of God isn't interested in that internal struggle, but in his act of faith. And so via an angel, the Lord intervenes and provides a ram in place of Isaac. And then we have this in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, God swears an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you. And God reiterates and reconfirms the promises that he's made to Abraham. He's promised them before. He's not promising anything new to Abraham at this point. But he confirms those promises with an oath and with the most powerful oath that he can make, swearing by himself. Again, I'm struck in the story by, and how it's presented in Scripture, that there's no hint of any hesitation on Abraham's part. No evidence of an internal, emotional, spiritual, psychological trauma or struggle. The word again is not interested in that, but in his act of faith. It may not be obvious to us as we read Genesis, but in Hebrews 11, which we also read this morning, Hebrews 11 affirms that that act of Abraham was driven by nothing other than confidence, certainty, and the promise of God being fulfilled as God gave it to him. In this boy, the promises will be fulfilled. What does it say at the beginning of Hebrews 11? That verse everybody likes to quote. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. <laughs> you think Abraham had assurance and conviction? Yeah. How do we know that? He was willing to kill his own son. And the text goes on to tell us that he's willing to do this because he believed that if he did, God would raise him from the dead. That, for me as a, as a regular normal human being, that's mind-blowing. To be able to think that way, to be able to have that kind of faith in God. Is there evidence of resurrection before, before this point in Scripture? None. And yet Abraham has this kind of faith. If I kill my son because God made the promises through that boy, he'll bring that boy back to life. Because God keeps his promises. That's what the author of Hebrews, that's what the Bible wants us to know about 
Abraham as he obeyed God in going to sacrifice his son. Now, no doubt, I have no doubt whatsoever, Abraham was filled with all sorts of internal turmoil and struggle. But that's not what Scripture wants us to know about. Whatever else was going on, internally in Abraham, perhaps the cries of his wife Sarah, what are you doing? The son himself, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Whatever else was going on, Abraham himself considered the promises of God, considered God himself, and concluded that he could do what God asked him to do because God had promised certain things through that very same son. God must be planning to raise Isaac from death. Again, how how many of us would have come to the same conclusion, gone through the same path of reasoning. Abraham indeed is a a man of powerful, powerful faith. And that's the kind of faith to which the author of Hebrews is pointing us. That kind of faith that inherits the promises of salvation as he wrote back in chapter 6 verse 12. Don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who did this? Abraham did this. How did he do this? Being willing to sacrifice his very own son. But that story also points us inherently to the God who makes those promises. That's the background for verses 13 to 20. Abraham is the story But ultimately, it's God who's the focus. The God who promises and the God who keeps his promises. Swearing by himself, pointing to his very own character. So the first thing to point out in these verses from 13 to 20 is that when God made that promise to Abraham, when he finally validated it that last time in Genesis 22, he validated his promise with an oath. And the text tells us, since he had no one greater than himself by which to swear, because there is no one greater than God, he swore by himself. So Abram, having patiently waited, including that patient waiting, includes active, <laughs> the active act of being willing to sacrifice his own son. Abraham himself re- obtained the promise of God. He obtained the promise. And that's, a, that's an interesting statement to make about Abraham. Because he, did he see descendants as numerous as the stars? As uncountable as the grains of sand on the seashore? No. Did he see kings? Nope. Did he see the possession of the promised land? Nope. They lived in tents, sojourners. Did he see that all the families of the earth were blessed? Nope. He didn't see or experience any of the promises of God. But it says in Hebrews that he obtained the promise in 6.15 when God made an oath to confirm the promises that he made. As soon as God made that oath by himself to fulfill his own promises, the future things that had been promised to Abraham was just as sure and certain as if they had already happened. 
Again, this oath is, is remind, uh, a reminder, a reminiscent of a contract or a covenant, the means by which these things are going to happen. It's a poor analogy, but think of it this way. We order things online today. That's how we shop. I only bought one thing for Christmas this year in person. Everything else I bought online. But think about it. You go online, you find something, you put it in your shopping cart, you click you want to pay for it, you pay for it with a credit card or whatever, you get a confirmation of that order, and guess what? You're going to get what you ordered, barring some snafu in the process. Once you've confirmed that order or received confirmation of it, it's coming. It might take seven to ten business days, (laughs) but it's coming. And if it doesn't come, you have a right to sue. Because they didn't fulfill their end of the contract, their end of the bargain. I made a promise to pay, they made a promise to deliver. On a grander scale, that's what's going on with God. He confirms his promise by his own oath. It will happen. If it's true for online shopping, it's even more true with God himself. It's kind of what the author is getting at in verse 16. People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Now, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, confirmation wasn't by credit card or an email that you get. Confirmation was by taking an oath. Oath taking meant something back in the day. And you typically took that oath by something greater than yourself, by a god or some divine being. And it was so important in this period of time that if you took an oath, everybody around you considered that that was it. That's done. If they took an oath, it's good. It's dependable. Because they've got to follow through. If they don't, they're punished. It also brings dishonor on the one who took the oath and dishonor upon the God in whose name they took the oath. And So you don't do that. You dishonor our God by taking a, an oath and not fulfilling it, you die. So oath-taking was very serious. And what does God do? He swears by himself. It's, it's not that different from when he passed through those two, those, those divided animals. If I don't keep this oath, may I die. Can God die? Of course not. So the promise is sure. Abraham obtained the promise as soon as God made that oath. Certain as it's already been, as if it's already been obtained. So in verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. It's done. It's sure. It's certain. So that's Abraham and God. That's God and his promise, his character. And then he brings it home to us in verses 18 to 20. There are two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And because of those two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's so sure, it's like an anchor that holds a boat or a ship fast in place while the currents and the tides and the winds want to move that ship about. What are the two unchangeable things? God's promise and God's oath. God cannot lie when he promises. God cannot lie when he makes an oath. God made a promise and he does not change his promises. God made an oath. He swore. 
and he cannot go back on an oath that he has sworn by himself. And so these things are dependable and unchangeable and as unchangeable as God himself. And so for us, what the author is saying is we have this sure hope as an anchor. The circumstances of life push at us and pull at us, just like the winds and waves and tides that push against that boat. But God is our anchor, and in the end, we cannot be moved if we hold fast to that anchor and don't cut loose from it. So the author then reminds us about our hope. Verse 19 talks about the anchor of the soul, which is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is our hope. Jesus went into that holy place, as we talked about, on our behalf, into the very presence of God. But here the author refers to Jesus as a forerunner, which is a word full of meaning here in this passage. One idea is the forerunner is just the guy who wins a race. He comes in first and everybody else follows behind. Um, that's not quite the idea here. The idea here is of the forerunner who goes before an army or before a, a, a party of traveling people as a scout to scout out the way and to show them the path to take. Or, and or, as a herald, someone who announces who's coming behind him. A scout, think of Davy Crockett leading people through the Appalachian Mountains. A scout finds the way and leads other people behind him. Come on, this is the way to go. This is safe. It could be as simple an image as as when I was a kid going hiking up on Mount Rainier with my dad. And we'd get up to the higher reaches where there's a lot of snow and ice and glaciers, and he'd he'd say, all right, we've got to cross this. I'm going to step, and I'm going to make a path. You put your feet where my feet are. He's scouting the way for us. And we had confidence. One, it held him up, and two, his feet are big. <laughs> and so our little feet fit in his, his path very easily. That's the idea here. Jesus goes before us. He scouts the way for us and says, come on behind. It's safe. Enables us to follow. But he also goes as a herald. Goes into the presence of God and says, there's people coming behind me. I've got followers that are coming. Get ready. That's Jesus for us. Gone into the holy place. Gone into God's presence. Made a way for us. Made us acceptable to God by taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. And from there he waves us in. Come on in. I made a way. Follow me in. But as he's talking to us, he's also talking to the Father. And he says, see those? See those ones following me? Those are mine. They're coming. Let's prepare a place. Let's be ready for him. What does Jesus tell his disciples? I go before you to prepare a place for you. That's what he's doing. Announcing the way. Telling the Father that we're coming. That's a picture for you to hold on to. All of you who by faith lay hold of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All the promises of God that are yours in him. He's telling you, come on, follow me. I prepared the way. But he's also telling the Father, they're coming. Those are mine. See that one there? That's mine. They're coming. Let them in. 
And he concludes the section of the author by saying he, he does this because he's become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is the topic we'll get to in chapter 7. Jesus goes before us, preparing and announcing our arrival. So what does this mean for us? A few things to think about. Just like for Abraham, God cannot and does not lie. His promises for us in and through Jesus Christ, by grace and through faith in him, are just as certain for us as those promises that God gave to Abraham. Even in the midst of the tides that push against us, the waves that pound against us, the wind that wants to blow us off, but if we hold fast to that anchor, even though life is hard, and life is hard, a lot of complaints about 2016, life is hard, life is painful, Life is full of trials and difficulties. But the promises of God are yours, and they're your possession now. You have obtained them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Even though some await to be fulfilled completely in the future, you possess them now, just like Abraham possessed centuries and millennia before the promises were fulfilled. He obtained those promises of God. So the call to us, and it fits in with everything the author's been saying to us so far. Hold fast to Jesus Christ, the anchor for your soul, by grace and through faith in him. But also like Abraham, this should affect how we live our lives. It should affect how we behave. I look around the room. Has anybody, has God asked any of you to sacrifice your child to him? No. But what has he asked you to do? What has he called you to do? And like Abraham, are you willing to do it despite how difficult it might be, how emotional it might be, despite the inconvenience of it or the embarrassment of it? What has God called you to? And are you willing to do it believing and hoping in Him? What are you willing to sacrifice to do what God has called you to do? To do and believe and hope the way that God has called you to do and to believe and to hope. Things that we can think about the way that God calls us to sacrifice. This is true for all of us. He calls us to sacrifice our time. We are called by God to give Him some of our time. We do that every Sunday morning. Really, he calls us to give it one day out of seven. Are we willing to give him our time? To sacrifice other things that we could do, other conveniences or other things that we could have? Are we willing to sacrifice our time and give it to God? Money. God asks us to be generous in giving to him. We talked about this in Sunday school last week. We can debate the nature of the tithe and its application to the church today, but certainly the church is to be generous. And this is one area where God says, test me. Test me in this. Are we willing to sacrifice our money, our wealth, our possessions to God? Even people in relationships, though. This is where we begin to touch upon, to nudge up against the call that Abraham had. 
Abraham had to give up his own efforts through Hagar and Ishmael. He has to be willing to sacrifice his very own son of promise. Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew 10, 36 to 39. Some of you, he says, are going to have to deny your very own family to follow me. Husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister. Are we willing to do that? To follow Jesus? To follow his call upon our lives? To sacrifice friends and even family to the call of God upon us? Now we could go on and on and on with other kinds of examples. But in the end, what it really comes down to is when God calls upon us to sacrifice something for him, are we willing to do it because of the promises that we've already obtained? And in reality, we have to be willing to sacrifice everything we have. Everything about ourselves, our whole person, our whole being, our, whole, our goals, our ideas, our desires, our thoughts, our actions. Everything is offered in sacrifice to God. I really think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 12. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And if you read the rest of that chapter, that's a pretty intense call. And so what would it look like? What would it look like in each of our own lives as believers? Or what would it look like in our lives together as the Church of God, even here in this small church at Mission Presbyterian? What would it look like for us to sacrifice in that kind of a manner? Hebrews calls us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of of salvation. He points us to Abraham and his incredible act of faith. He obtained the promise not because of what he did, works do not save us, but because the faith produced works that were evidence of that faith. If you have faith this morning, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you look to the blessed hope of Christ's return and eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, if you hear that call, come, follow me. <laughs> I prepared the way. If you know that when he talks to the Father, that he's saying your name, they're coming. If you have that faith, wonderful. If not, time to repent and believe and obtain those promises. Follow Jesus himself into the holy presence of a holy God. But if you have, then we are called to show our faith by how we live. This is what the author of Hebrews is calling to us to do, and, and God himself through this author. Not to have a sluggish faith, a complacent faith, but a vigorous and energetic and even an urgent faith. So that we're not in danger of those who the author writes about who are, who are on the precipice of falling away, but rather that we can be and be known as those who are energetic and urgent in pursuing our inheritance, Jesus Christ, our forerunner, our Savior, our brother, our friend, our King, and our High Priest. It's a new year. People make resolutions. Keep it simple. <laughs> Pursue Christ. Chase after him. Your forerunner with everything that you've got. 
Let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, we cannot do these things that you call us to do in our own strength, by our own ability. We are weak and incapable without the aid that you provide through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, quickening us to new life, but also opening our mind to the truths of your word and teaching us them and planting them in our hearts and creating that fervent desire in us. First to hold fast to the promises that are ours, but then also to follow after our forerunner, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to do that together. Help us to encourage one another in this pursuit. And we ask that you would do this not for our sake, but for your glory, and that the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted up and exalted here and around the world. We ask it in his precious, holy, and wonderful name. Amen.